And there you are, Shabbat Shalom, and greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. It is the Sabbath. Bless one another, greet one another in the chat. If you were in the Shabbat Fellowship group this morning, blessings to you. I have great reports that you had a wonderful time, fabulous interactions. So we are very, very blessed that that group continues to grow. Connect with one another. That's what it's all about. You can go to torahtothetribes.com forward slash connect and connect with one another. We will be putting the Passover dates up in the connect realm here in the next week so you can sign up for the Passover coming around the 2nd and 3rd of April on the Roman calendar. We have our calendar, excuse me, calendar, our Hebrew calendar actually uploaded. You can check the dates there by going to torahtothetribes.com forward slash connect and then scroll down to the feasts and you'll see a downloadable calendar. All right, Baruch Hashem Yahweh, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, the fifth Hebrew gospel. We are in the seventh chapter today, and this is where Yeshayahu, Isaiah, is sent to King Ahaz. And I got to be honest with you, I got to be honest with you, I kind of fell into a trap. I kind of fell into a snare this week. When I was studying Isaiah chapter 7, I got really, really depressed. Do you know why? Because I have to read a bunch of stuff so you don't have to read it. I don't have to. I choose to. And, of course, I was choosing to read a lot of Jewish commentaries on Isaiah chapter 7. And it was so depressing on how they obfuscate the Emmanuel prophecy and how they absolutely confound the matter, arguing between this rabbi and that rabbi, and it's right there. But it was like so discouraging. And then I caught myself and I was like, what? And then I had to implement the power of reversal. So I'm going to teach you about the power of reversal this week, today, because I implemented it, and now I'm super pumped about Isaiah chapter 7, because it is inspiring. But i got to admit, I got sucked into the trap. But then I thought, this happens so often in our life. We're, we're walking along, and we get sucked in without knowing it, and then we've got all of these feelings of oppression, depression, whatever. And you're like, well, how did that happen? So then how do you get out of it? The power of reversal. Isaiah, the Hebrew gospel, chapter 7, is awesome. It's yasum. That's an even better word. Yasum. Inspiring. Matthew, how could you get a feeling of heaviness? Well, you have to watch what you read. Watch what you listen to and watch what you look at, right? Didn't I just teach that last week? And there I go, you see? 
But I got taught through the process to now bring you the power of reversal. Yeshayahu, Isaiah chapter 7. Let's get inspired. Let's get inspired. And it came to pass in the day of Echaz, the son of Jotham, or Jotham in the Hebrew, the son of Uziyahu, Melech of Yehuda, that Retzin, the Melech of Amram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Melech, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, to war against it, but they could not prevail against it. So Jotham is succeeded by his wicked son Ahaz, who has plunged Judah, the kingdom of Judah, at this time into deep idolatry. So what does Yahuwah do? Yahuwah sends down the northern kings, King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of the ten northern tribes to attack Judah. This is the context of Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 2, And it was told to Bet-Dawid, the house of David, saying, Aram is in alliance with Ephraim. So now the two kings, they've come in an alliance to come down into Judah and to go up to Jerusalem to attack it. Because, of course, Ahaz is just a wicked Judean king. So we've got the northern king of the house of Ephraim, commonly called the ten northern tribes, has made an alliance with the king of Aram. They've gone down into Judah, gone up to Jerusalem. They plan on attacking it, but they could not prevail against it. Isaiah comes into the scene, and now he speaks the sign, the prophecy. And this is where I fell into the trap. Because I started to read, I'm like, I want to know what the Jews, or we know, the synagogue of Satan, would how they would interpret this. And then I got so, like, drugged down into it. And I was like, why am I feeling this way? This, this, is, this is so, this is not normal. I don't, I mean, I'm usually inspired. And then I was like, oh my goodness, look what happened to me. And then I put in reversal, the power of reversal, which is something that I practice in my life. And it was just awesome how, boom, then I got inspired and could see the revelation. So I thought, I'm going to teach the power of reversal this week within this chapter. Because that's what I've experienced, and I believe Yahweh wants you to overcome in your life as well. Because I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one, especially in this modern age. Verse 2, And it was told to the house of David, saying, Aram is in alliance with Ephraim. And their heart was moved, and the heart of their people, as the Etzim, the trees of the woods, are moved with a strong wind. Then said Yahuwah to Yeshiyahu, Isaiah, Oh, you are like clockwork, aren't you, with that phone? It's got to be how many years? Just clockwork. It's okay. It's comforting to my soul. We good? Are we sure? It's a flip phone. It's created in the 1990s. And it's still working, but not for much bloody longer. 
All right, verse 3. Then said Yahuwah to Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Go forth now to me, Ahaz, and take Shear Yashuv, your son, at the end of the channel of the upper pool in the highway of the launderer's field. Well, what's that? Well, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, which I have several times, there's two pools, one on the incline of the mountain and one at its base. Now, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, was to meet Ahaz at the upper pool. And this was a reservoir that trapped rainwater for the people of Jerusalem. And when the people needed water for drinking, or in this case doing their laundry, um, then the gate of the pool would be opened and the water would then flow into the channel, which is how it got its name, the laundress field, because once they had laundered their garments, they would then lay them out on the stone rocks and spread them out so that they could dry their clothing in the sun. So there's a little bit of context for you. And you can see that when you go to Jerusalem still today. Verse 4. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be troubled by these two stubs of a smoking firebrand. I like that language, don't you? You two stubs of a smoking firebrand, right? Meet a couple of couple of chaffers on the side of the road, that's what you could say, right? You two smoking firebrands, like chaff, right? Which is, you know, going off on a side tangent here, but that's where the word faggot comes from, um, is back in, of course, England, what they would do is they would take faggots, which were um, bundles, sticks of wood, and they would bundle them together and that would be how they would make the fire go. A faggot would be how you would start a fire. It's just a stick that was bundled together in a group of sticks. Now, as, as history progressed, then, you know, you would read the Torah, and then you would see what the judgment is for a certain kind of behavior, and that would be the same as the bundle of sticks, which, of course, was named a faggot, which then makes you know why, you know, when I first came to America, when I was 19, I landed in the Midwest somewhere, and I've been on a flight for, you know, eight hours, and I, I, I remember walking into the airport bar, this is my first experience in America, and um, I think I ordered a lager, and I said to the barman, I said, do you know where I can find some fags? And he looked at me, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you might not want to say that over here. And I was like, oh, really, why not? He had to explain, because back in England, of course, now you know that's what you would call a cigarette, right? It's an instrument that you would catch on fire, right? So, you know, I love language. Anyway, back to these smoking fire brands for the fierce anger of Retzin, Melech of Aram and by the son of Ramalia. Now, I'm going to get in trouble again, like I did last week, because my wife is like, you are oversharing about your wicked past. But, you know, I am what I am. Because Aram, first five, 
Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against you, saying, Let us go up to Yehuda and trouble it, and let us break them open for ourselves, and set our own Melech, our own king, the son of Tavael, in their midst. Well, this is, of course, you know, trying to overthrow the kingship. This, says Yahuwah, the master Yahuwah, it shall not stand, and neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin. And within 65 years shall Ephraim be broken. So now we're talking the prophecy right here. This is talking about the disbandment of the ten tribes. Exiled into the nation, they're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. So this is an impending doom on the ten northern tribes, prophesied right here, that it will be low a me, not a people. That's a very important phrase. The not my people, the Apostle Paul uses that very word in the New Testament. The low a me, you who were not my people are now my people. So if that word is used, that particular lower me phrase in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, what could it possibly be talking about? Could it possibly be talking about a bunch of Catholics who are not his people but used to be his people? Well, that's insanity. They were never his people. His people were the ten northern tribes and any sojourner who attached to them that got scattered into the nations. So that when the king comes, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, the Emmanuel comes, he's going to be the one who was not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or better, in the Matthew Shem Tov translation, I was not sent but to the prostituting sheep of the house of Israel because that's what they were they were whoring around with foreign gods they were whoring around in idolatry with Ishtarith the bare-breasted fertility goddess of Ishtar or Ishtar and all of the other traditions that have got incorporated into Christianity at the Council of Nicaea and here we are further along down the railroad track and we've been railroaded by the pagan traditions of man. But we're that generation that's coming out of it. And there I was getting sucked back into the traditions of men. Not really, but reading them. Talmudic, which is of course Babylonian in nature, which of course is the origins of the synagogue of Satan that is very present with us today, especially when it comes to what we look at, what we listen, and what we read. Very much so. Beware, you may need to learn how to implement the power of reversal if you find yourself under that kind of attack. Because none of us are immune to it unless we live in a cave like Elijah did, which sometimes seems quite appealing to me. Where were we? The low me, not my people. Verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Shomron, and the head of Shomron is Ramalia's son. And if you will not believe me, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, 
Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign, an oath from Yahweh your Elohim. Ask it in depth, or make the request highly difficult. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I test Yahweh. And Yeshayahu, Isaiah, said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my Elohim also? So Ahaz's disloyalty is the context of Yahweh's response to Ahaz here. Okay? Now, the Gospel of Matthew applies Yeshayahu Isaiah's prophecy of the son Emmanuel, of course, to Yahushua. We all know that. Now, giving the critics their due, that that interpretation doesn't qualify as a personal sign or a confirmation after everything I read this week, as a sign to Ahaz, okay, that's what they're saying. Oh, this isn't the sign for, for that. This, this is something, okay. Because Ahaz would have been long dead. It wouldn't do him much good for a sign, would it? Right? Okay, okay. Well, let's be real. But the full context, though, of Emmanuel here includes the king of Assyria, Babylon's invasion of the land of Emmanuel in the days of Emmanuel, verses 16 through 20. This happened a generation later in the days of King Hezekiah, which is Ahaz's own son. Okay? Okay, okay, I can, I can see that. Now, now, within the larger context of Isaiah's prophecy, this is where we shall focus today, because I believe that is where it really affects us further down the tracks, because we have more information. The son, Emmanuel, is one of three who represent three spiritual categories of people in Yahweh's day of judgment. Let's just start there, okay? I understand that the traditional Talmudic Jews will attribute the son, the Emmanuel prophecy, to various natural sons of the kings or Ahazes and the sons in a generational and genealogical line to obfuscate the truth of the gospel. I get that. I get that. But let's just start with the representation of these three spiritual categories of people in Yahweh's day of judgment. Because I believe we're in that generation where we're going to see that judgment. So that's pretty important. Number one, Emmanuel. Elohim is with us. Elohim is with us. Are we doing camera switching today, Moshe? Okay, good. Emmanuel, meaning Elohim is with us. This designates then what? Is Elohim with you? Is Elohim with you? With you? With you? With me? So what does that designate? This designates the elect category that has embraced the Emmanuel prophecy in its full context, right? The revelation of the book of Matthew 
is to the elect. The elect category has Emmanuel is with us. Emmanuel is with us. He's actually become a part of us and we're a part of him. If you know the Son, you know the Son. And you recognize others that know the Son. And I'm not talking about yada, yada, yada. I'm talking about da'at, intimate knowledge. We've had a change of heart. As Paul says, brit milah halev, circumcision of the heart. So the first category designates the elect category that Yahuwah is with us and for whose sake he will deliver us. Whose sake? Emmanuel's sake. Because Emmanuel has gone out and found a little lost sheep like you and I and brought us into the fold. Number one. Number two is the Shir Yashub category, which is what? Shir Yashub means a remnant will repent or a remnant will return. The Hebrew word there is shuv, which means to turn around and go back in the direction from where you originally came from which was obedience to the commandments given at the mountain. And you've gone a long way from that. You've actually ended up on another mountain doing a bunch of idolatry. So turn around and go back from where you came and be restored. Repent. Make a turnaround in your life. Teshuva. That's what that means. And this designates those who repent and return in our day, at the greater exodus at the end of the age. We're going to face our faces to Jerusalem, and we're going to return back to the promised land. But we can't go early. We have to wait for that land to be cleansed by fire from all its Babylonian occult inhabitants. Okay, that's what the prophecies say. And the third category is the Mahal Shalal Hashbaz. What a mouthful that is. But what does that mean? Hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. Hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil. This designates those whom the arch tyrant destroys because they are just devilishly wicked. The thorny humans on which we get pricked and tangled up on our daily walk. Do we not? We bump into them all over the place. The unregenerate, those that refuse to repent, the Mahashal Hashbaz, hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil to those whom are just wicked, thorny humans that try and prick and tangle and entrap us in our daily life. Yahweh's sign to Ahaz does not exclude Talmudic Jews, the gospel writer's interpretation. It doesn't exclude that. The primary intent, yes, it is historical at the time of Ahaz. I'll give you that. But even there, his son Hezekiah, in some respects, is a shadow of the Emmanuel, because they say, oh, this is about his son, Hezekiah. That's the sign for that son. But Yahuwah is with his people, Israel, when he delivers them from the Assyrian army, isn't he? So yes, I understand that. Yahuwah is with his people in Jerusalem, Emmanuel, when he delivers them from the ten northern tribes and the kings. 
Does that make sense? So yes, I can understand that plain sense of the text historically, and I'm not disputing that. But there's more. And that interpretation does not bar the Matthew Gospel interpretation, does it? They can both harmoniously coexist together. So I'm not going to be all Christianese with you and say, oh, this is all about Jesus. This is the Emmanuel prophecy. And no, this has got no historical context. No, it does. It has a huge historical context that Yahweh was with his people, Emmanuel, through the sons of the kings in Judea, and he was with them, and he delivered them from the hands of the northern ten tribes and the coalition of the kings, for sure and for certain. But that does not bar the fuller, sowed interpretation of the full revelation. It leads into it. Yahweh is sharing his heart with us. So, as with the way of Hebrew things, there are always several meanings and several levels of meaning. And that was something we were never taught in the church. We have the Peshat, we have the Remez, we have the Drash, and we have the Sod, what's called a Pardes. And Pardes is the Hebrew word for orchard. There's many fruits to eat on different levels of interpretation. The larger context of Isaiah's prophecy, of course, is Yahushua, the blessed son. Now, obviously, Judaism denies the virgin birth. This text is attributed to the nation, oftentimes, by the Talmudics, not Yahushua. And this is how Judaism does choose to obfuscate the text. For example, I'll give you an example, okay? Isaiah, the Talmudics say, is referring to a specific woman who was known to them at the time. Okay, even if that's so, that still doesn't mean that you can have the sowed interpretation of the Gospels, does it? According to Rashi, one of Judaism's greater rabbis, the young woman was no other than Isaiah's wife. But according to Radak, she may have been the wife of Ahaz. So they can't, even their, their, their greatest rabbis, according to them, they can't even agree, which is what you find when you read commentaries from Judaism. Nobody agrees, which is why they have all of these extra-biblical laws in the Talmud and the Mishnah on all of the arguments going back and forth over the centuries between the rabbis because nobody can agree on anything. They can't agree on anything. We've got Rashi saying, well, this young woman was Isaiah's wife, and then you've got Radak arguing with Rashi saying, no, this is the wife of Ahaz, and then you've got Rashi saying, well, the child mentioned um, is actually the child of chapter 8. But then when you go to read chapter 8, that makes no sense, which is nonsense, because the child is given a different name in chapter 8 altogether. I thought the name was Emmanuel, and now you're attributing it to the name, and it makes no sense. Now, according to Radak, the woman is Ahaz's queen, and they were two different children. You see, Judaism's varied ways of dealing with this text ultimately confounds the reader 
and diverts the reader away from the gospel truth. And this is where I came into the power of reversal. Because I'm like, what? Why am I feeling so down about? Because I've been reading all of this Talmudic interpretations of, of, of the prophecy. And I was like, it was all full of FUD. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I'm like, well, that is a synagogue of Satan tactic, isn't it? To rob you of your faith hope and glory and this world is full of fear uncertainty and doubt so how do we deal with fear uncertainty and doubt we have got to implement the power of reversal to overcome all of the negativity that puts out there we must learn to overcome negativity of a particular thing it can be anything Whatever you're dealing with today or tomorrow in your situation. Me, I was dealing with the negativity of a particular thing, of a Talmudic interpretation, Babylonian in origin, synagogue of Satan in origin, of Isaiah chapter 7. I know the wonderful truth of the Gospels, yet it was diluted and polluted and oppression, depression, discouragement came upon me by what I chose to see with my eyes. Read. Be careful. Think about everything that comes before your eyes today on your flashy screens. And so then, when then, we have to implement the power of reversal to overcome fear. Uncertainty. Doubt of a particular thing. It could be anything you're dealing with. Anything you're dealing with. And this, brethren, is the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in us. It is the power because it will lead us to find the positive quality, which is, first of all, we start to gain patience. Then we begin to get a supreme confidence. And then we get a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And with that, that leads us into the power of reversal. So first of all, I had to be patient with myself. Because I'm getting all like vexed. So if I had to calm down, I, first I recognized it. Then I got to be patient. Step back. Gain patience, number one then I have to have a supreme confidence. I have a supreme confidence in Emmanuel. Because I know him, and he knows me. I have a supreme confidence. So whatever it is, the thing that you have to overcome, first of all, you've got to recognize it. Second of all, you've got to step back, and you've got to have some patience with the trap that you have just realized that you fell into then you have got to have a supreme confidence in the power of reversal. Whatever it is, the reversal of what you're trapped in, a supreme confidence in your ability to reverse it, and then you've got to have reliance on the Creator, Yahweh Elohim, and His Holy Spirit to lead you in that reversal. Our attitude has the power. Think about this. Our attitude has the power.
power of shaping reality in two opposite directions. People don't realize that. You do it every day and you don't realize it. And that could be a life lived in deficit. But awakening to the knowledge of it will allow you to implement the power of reversal in your life where you hadn't been aware of the negative aspects of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Our attitude has the power of shaping reality in two opposite directions. Number one, one that constricts and corners us with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Leviathan, the spirit of Leviathan. The other that opens up our faith. It's the neshamu, the breathing, the expansion, the ruach, the power of breath, the power of breath, the Hebrew word neshamu, the possibilities that freedom brings, freedom of action. We actually turn all obstacles into openings. Every obstacle is actually an opening in your life when you look at the power of reversal. We can overcome centuries of false prophecies concerning the Messiah and his appearance onto the scene through the power of reversal. There has been no more false prophecies on the Emmanuel prophecy than from the Talmudics, has there? They have introduced more messiahs that have been false messiahs than any other peoples on the whole of the earth. The power of reversal was the gospel writers. How could they overcome all of those false prophecies regarding Isaiah chapter 7? The gospel writer Matthew, Matthew, Marcus, Lucas, and Yohanan all overcame all of those false prophecies, all of the false messiahs. Oh, this one's the messiah. Oh, no, no, now it's this one. Now it... They were able to overcome all of that by the power of reversal, take this text and go, no, it's the one born in Bethlehem. Let us show you how. They didn't give in to the fear, uncertainty, and doubt when it came to these interpretations that I've just spent a week looking at. They were able to come, overcome hundreds of years of false prophecies concerning the Messiah. Remember those dark ages? Not the medieval times or the dark ages. I'm talking the dark ages before where there was that dark period of several hundred years after Chronicles before the introduction of the high priest in the desert eating honey and clothed in camel skin. There was a dark period. Now, of course, our Bibles have Malachi as the last book, if you, but if you look at the proper order of the scrolls, you'll see that it's not. But there was a dark period where Israel hadn't heard from the prophets for several hundred years. That was a fear, uncertainty, and doubt period that our gospel writers were able to overcome by the power of reversal. To be able to see clearly. 
They were able to expand their vision far and wide, giving them the unique capacity to distinguish between the patterns in events. They were able to learn from the past. They were able to glimpse into the future to see through appearances of all those false messiahs. That's pretty powerful. If you think about what was going on in Judea at the time. Now today, we have to be aware of the synagogue of Satan's tactics. Talmudic to its core, developed by Judaism in response to this text, and that is conspiring to dull your greatest weapon. What is your greatest weapon? Your rational, conscious mind. That's what the synagogue of Satan is attempting to dull today. Your greatest weapon which is your rational, conscious mind. They are trying to render it useless by turning you inward and making you afraid of reality. Do we live in a very inward society? Don't we? You can go to a coffee shop, which back in you know the 90s, when everybody was going to coffee shops, it was like, Chatty, chatty, ch- I mean, you're buzzing with energy. Now you go to a coffee shop and everybody is inward. And nobody is talking to anybody. And you walk in and it's, this is an antisocial place. It's not social. It used to be social. I mean, that whole TV show, Friends, was birthed out of the coffee shop culture of the late 80s and 90s where you go into a coffee shop and everybody was chatting it up. You would meet people, there's conversations here, left, right. Now you go in, it's quiet. Phone, demon music being playing. Right? Always demon music playing. It's always that bloody Hotel California, wherever you go. I don't know what the, right? I mean, if that, I mean, everywhere. At the gym, oh, there it is again. Oh, the post office. Oh, there. What is everywhere? I know if you. I mean, it pops up everywhere. That song, from hell. It's an inward culture, making us afraid of reality. No, that's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So, to, to defeat this inward culture, which we live within. We have to recognize we do now live within an inward culture. How do we defeat it? We must use the power of reversal, meaning we have to move in the opposite direction. We must turn the outward in our faith. We've got to be outward in our faith. We've got to become a keen observer of all that is around us. Rather than being, you know, don't walk across the street looking at your foot. How many times do you see that? I saw a guy the other day on a bicycle, four lanes of traffic with the suicide lane in the middle, with headphones on, his phone on his handlebars, watching a movie as he's, I'm like, wow. That man has got some serious faith. No, he's insane, okay? He's on a death wish. That's not faith. That's folly. I mean, you look at somebody like that, oh, can you imagine just a 
live that carefree. <laughs> no, I don't think it's carefree. I think it's stupidity. That's the problem. We are living in an inward culture and we must use the power of reversal and moving in the opposite direction. We must turn the outward in our faith outward. We must become an ob observer of everything around us. We are doing battle against all of the fantasies of the new world order that are thrown at us by the synagogue of Satan through media daily. The power of reversal allows us to tighten our connection to the Creator. We want clarity. We don't want escapism. I don't want to escape. I want clarity. I don't want to escape the confusion. I want to be a keen observer and get clarity in all aspects of my life. Moving in the Creator's direction through obedience of faith will instantly bring you power in a world full of dreamers. And do we not live in a world full of dreamers? Like Judaism, if we read this text defensively, we close ourselves off from the power this text could bring us. And that's what I was realizing this week. Judaism reads this text so defensively because it knows how another faith has interpreted this text. So they are so defensive in their interpretation of the text that it is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And that is it. And they're all arguing against one another. But they don't want to mention anything about, you know, anybody who was crucified and rose. Oh, and they're the one. No, no, they're going to stick. But it's fully contentious because they're coming from behind. They're coming from behind. They're reading the text defensively. And when we are defensive, we close ourselves off from the power of reversal. Defensiveness is the worst thing that you can do. You have to be offensive by opening up your faith to the whole world. Be a light. Don't hide it under a basket. Because if you become defensive, then you will be constricted by the power of Leviathan. Instead, as believers, we should absorb this text and open our minds up and have a fearless spirit letting the prophecy actually absorb into our very being let it get under your skin and affect how you see the world we must see the world through faith and development and then we'll start to get the prophet's mind Judaism, on the other hand's justification of their constricting and defensive interpretation is fatally flawed because the rabbis say that this text, verse 14, designates a young woman. This has got nothing to do with a virgin. This is a young woman. Because they interpret the word used in Hebrew is alma, alma. And they say this is an eved, a maid, or a damsel. 
And in some of your translations in verse 14, what does it say? Does it say maid? Does it say damsel? Does it say virgin? 7.14, what translation are you reading from? You're reading the Jimmy. It says virgin. Well, that, that you know, obviously is an Elizabethan translation, King Jimmy Court, of that origin, that era. What about you? What are you reading? Aramaic? Um, yeah, the, uh, the NET. What does it say? So Mm-hmm. So it says young woman. Okay. So the word there is Alma in the Hebrew. But then, by reversal, because now you see you've been led into fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Oh, no, no, this is just a maid. This is just a damsel. This isn't a virgin. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. But then by reversal... We start to absorb the text, let it get into our being, let it get onto our skin. We become patient as the Bible as a whole, and then we start to see the possibilities and freedom of action, seeing that there isn't a single instant where this word solely designates a young woman who is not a virgin anywhere in the Bible. Because now I've got clarity. And I want clarity in my life, not confusion. You see how I did that? Do you see how I did that? That's the power of reversal. Eved, virgin, alamah. Alamah is the word used in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In the Tanakh, in the whole of the Old Testament, it was never, ever disputed to mean virgin until who came along until who came along it was never disputed by the 70 rabbis that interpreted and translated the hebrew into the septuagint 70 in excess 72 no problems because that was before yahushua but now after yahushua Oh, with the Masoretic text done by the, Naz uh, the Masorites in 900. Oh, now. Oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't mean virgin at all. It's just a maiden. It's just a damsel. It's just a young woman. Well, hang on a minute. There is nowhere in the Bible where this word solely designates a young woman, a damsel who is not a virgin. Clarity comes to me. But I had to start to implement the power of reversal firstly have patience and then clarity comes 70 Jewish rabbis translated Alma in the Septuagint as Parthios Parthenos excuse me in the Greek Parthenos in the Greek is virgin so 70 rabbis, 240 years before Yahushua, so there's no threat, there's no fear, uncertainty and doubt that their Talmudic stronghold is going to be broken and the light is going to come and shine in the darkness of magic, occult magic, and expose it for what it is. 70 in excess rabbis, they go, Alamah. 
Well, let's translate this into the Greek word parthenos, and then that will be translated into the English word virgin. No problems. No problems. Then along comes Yahusha. Now, chaos in religion. They've got to reinterpret everything because this has now brought a threat to their dominion of SOS. Synagogue of Satan realm. See? Hundreds of years before Yahushua, no problems. What changed? The birth, death, burial, and resurrection of the man from Nazareth. That's what changed. Parthenos in the Septuagint always means virgin. Always. Remember, the Septuagint, the LXX, is a Jewish translation written in the pre-Christian Alexandria, Egypt. I recommend if you want to get a Septuagint, Brenton's Septuagint is fabulous. That's my favorite, Brenton's Septuagint. Now, it represented the Septuagint. I love the Septuagint because it represents an unbiased Jewish interpretation of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, because it was interpreted 240 years before Yahushua came on the scene. It's unbiased, which is why the gospel writers used it. That's why the Septuagint is so important in your studies. It's much earlier, much earlier than the Masoretic text. Now, Matthew's use of the same word, parthenos, refers back then to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You can see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. So the context makes it clear that the virgin is pregnant, but still a virgin. The context makes that apparently clear. But you have to do the reversal through all of that Talmudic nonsense to get the clarity again. Now, Judans, Judaism's modern, 2,000 years, modern position is this. Well, Betula, Betula actually means virgin. Well, hang on a minute. That's not what 70 in excess of your rabbis said when they translated the Hebrew into the Septuagint, but now you're saying, oh, Betula means virgin. Alamar doesn't mean virgin. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Let, let's examine that one for a little bit. It's often difficult when you come across people who cling to their delusions, isn't it? Absolutely cling to their delusions. They find it difficult, if not impossible, to learn anything worth learning. That's a terrible place to be. The power of reversal to delusion is examine everything and soak up learning just the way the roots of a tree soak up water. And that's what we did to come into Torah, is it not? That's what we did to start celebrating the feasts and the Sabbaths. We had to overcome the delusions of the Council of Nicaea. We had to come overcome the delusions of 2,000 years of Christian men's traditions. Papal bull, as I call it. 
We had to overcome that. And how did we do that? By the power of reversal. You may not have realized it when you were doing it, but you were implementing the power of reversal in your life. You started to examine everything. You start to soak up learning. Be a Berean, we tell each other, right? Be a Berean. And you were soaking up learning because we are trees. Remember when Yahushua came along and he healed the blind man? He said, he was blind from birth. I see men as trees walking. Yes, meaning we're to have deep roots that soak up the water. We examine everything and we soak up learning. Let's examine Judaism's delusion just for a minute because you can do the power of reversal so I'm not concerned that you're going to get oppressed or depressed but the power of reversal does allow me to see a major flaw drum roll Betula doesn't necessarily mean virgin so are you tracking with me so far that would be a big reversal, wouldn't it? Because now Judaism's coming along and they're saying, Betula means virgin. You're mistaken. So that Hebrew word, Alama, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that doesn't mean virgin. That means damsel. We'll obfuscate that 72 rabbis, our own rabbis, actually did translate it into the Greek word, Parthenos, which means virgin. Well, we won't you know, we'll kick that under the table of history. But now, modern Judaism is going to tell you, no, virgin is Betula. Betula. Now let's use the power of reversal on that delusion. Because it's power. Let's look at this. This is amazing. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 14. Betula means a virgin. Oh, it does? Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 14. Now, there's a bit of a domestic situation going on in Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 22. We'll just skip forward. You can read the whole chapter in your own time. There's a, some domestic abuse charges going on here. Um, chapter 22, verse 14. He makes abusive charges against her and brings up an evil name upon her and says, I took this woman... And when I came to her, I found her Betula, not a virgin. <laughs> what? So Betula means not a virgin. Is that correct? <laughs> you see? Power of reversal right there. Had to have some patience. Not get upset. Step away. There's a bunch of confusion. Bring clarity, reapproach the text, <laughs> clarity, Betula, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 13. This is the laws concerning sexual immor immorality. It would be grand, of course, if we lived under such a society today, wouldn't it? Our leaders are cowards, though. That's the problem. They are emasculated feminized cowards they would never implement laws of sexual purity would they but they used to that's called the Torah and there were consequences for sexual immorality 
but you get a bunch of feminized cowards, emasculated eunuchs. And of course, now it's an anything goes culture. In fact, they actually fan the flames of immorality and they shove under a desk family, faith, hearth, and home as offensive. Verse 13 of Deuteronomy chapter 22. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and hates her and makes abusive charges against her and brings up an evil name upon her and says, I took this woman and I went into her, I found her not a virgin, Betulah. But Judaism is trying to convince you that Betulah means a virgin. But right here it tells you in the text, Betulah means not a virgin. But I just spent a week reading back. I was getting confused. And then the power of reversal. Then shall the father, the Abba of the damsel, and her Ema, mother, take and bring forth the token tokens of the damsel's virginity to the Zachanim, the elders of the city in the gate. But there's more. More clarity comes. Because a matter is established out of the mouth of how many? Two or three witnesses. Go to Rat go down to Deuteronomy chapter twenty two, verse nineteen. And they shall fine him one hundred shekels of silver and give them to the Abba of the damsel, because he has brought up an evil name upon a virgin, Betulah of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not put her away all his days. Huh? Here... Betulah is used to speak of a woman who has already had intercourse on her wedding night. Betulat Israel, a virgin of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 19. Don't get caught off by first glances. Matrix terminology, that's the woman in the red dress. That's the distraction. No, You've got to have patience. You've got to see through the confusion. That's what they're just flapping at you. That's the red in front of the bull. In the matrix, you see the woman walking along in the black and white, and she's got the red dress, okay? That's the fakery. It's right here. It's amazing. Betulat Israel, in the Hebrew, a virgin of Israel, meaning it's a woman who has already had intercourse on her wedding night. But there's more. What about an old fishwife? What about an old fishwife, a married, childbearing woman, and becomes a widow? Well, she is also called a betula. Wail like a virgin Betulah, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. That's Joel chapter 1 verse 8. Now some of you in England will be offended because I use that English word, the old fishwife. Can't escape my youth, the old fishwife. 
We used to say that when we were boys, when we go down to the harbour in Portsmouth. That's a skanky place. Not if, no offence if you live in Portsmouth. I mean, I used to go there all the time when I was a boy. I used to take the train down to Portsmouth, sit on the beach amongst all the fishwives. <laughs> oh, dear me. Wail like a virgin Betula, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Oh, you mean she is a, a married, childbearing woman who had intercourse with her husband and then she becomes a widow and she's called a Betula. How is she a virgin exactly? <laughs> Do you see? I'm doing this so you don't have to end up in the confusion. Because I can't tell you how many messianics bought into this nonsense and they deny the virgin birth. And then they end up denying Yahusha. Then they up end up denying the whole New Testament. And then the next thing you see them in the supermarket, they're like dressed up like Jews. And you're like, I thought you were a Baptist. Oh, no, 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 no. I discovered that I'm from the tribe of Levi. Oh, oh I thought you were a... Uh a Puerto Rican Pentecostal. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm a descendant of Aaron. Oh, okay. Huh, interesting. All right, keeping on. Don't get confused. Stay out of the mud. Judaism and their Masoretic text is dubious. I said dubious, not dubious. Dubious with a D not dubious. It has been redacted 134 times to obfuscate Yahushua as the Messiah, the Masoretic text. 134 times they've gone in there and changed it from the Septuagint. You realize that? 134 times. That's willful. That's defiant. And it's intentional. The Septuagint has rightly been used to proclaim Yahushua as Messiah, born of a virgin. One Messiah. We haven't gone around claiming a hundred or so. We've claimed one Messiah, born of a virgin, crucified, buried, three days and three nights, not Friday to Sunday, no, three, we can count. Not Friday night to Sunday morning. That's not three. I know, I know, I know the modern math. And I know the Council of Nicaean math, but it doesn't work out. It's very confusion. Confusion, confusing, confusing. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Oh, I'm going to have to go see the priest. No. We go see the high priest, the Emmanuel. But the Septuagint has rightly been used to proclaim Yahushua as Messiah, born of a virgin, one Messiah. The Masoretic text, on the other hand, has been used to proclaim 68 Messiahs. That's confusing. It's really confusing. It's so confusing. And then you're like, oh, well, fear, uncertainty, doubt. Rashi on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is the one good thing I did find. Behold, the Alamah shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This means our creator will be with us. And this is the sign. 
The one who shall conceive is a girl who never in her life has had intercourse with any man. You'll really have to dig to find that, though, because <laughs> that is seriously obfuscated today. Look at verse 14. Man, I've got to not take those clay tablets. I took some clay tablets. Supposed to detoxify you. Man, I'm thirsty. I am so thirsty. Because, of course, it tells you to take one, and I took three. It's really good. What is it called? Do you know that stuff? It's like bromidian clay or something. I mean, I'm a man of the dirt. It's got to be good for you, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Man, I'm thirsty. Like, why am I so thirsty? Oh, that's why. Verse 14. Therefore, Yahweh himself shall give you an oat, a sign. See? The Alama, the virgin, always was a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and to choose the good. The power of reversal is what I experienced this week. I really did to overcome all the negativity that is put out there about our faith, to overcome all the negativity that is put out there. We must learn to overcome the negativity of a particular thing, whatever that thing is. And when we do, this will lead us to find the positive qualities in life. I gain more patience when I implement the power of reversal. I gain more confidence when I implement the power of reversal. I do gain more reliance on the Holy Spirit when I implement the power of reversal. It's something I've practiced for many years, but not really articulated until this week because I had to see the spiritual dark component of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt when it comes to my faith. There's nothing more important to me than Yahusha. There's nothing more important to me that he is the without sin Lamb of Yahuwah. But then to go into the darkness of Oh, he wasn't born of a virgin. Oh, and all this Talmudic magic is actually very terrifying. So then to see the spiritual component of that and then to implement it, now I'm able to articulate it because the arch enemy, Satan himself, is looking to make us fearful, uncertain, and doubtful. And Paul says, do not give heed to doubtful disputations. Those that try to stir up a controversy in your life, don't entertain evil. The arch enemy of the power of reversal is dependency. 
not being able to accomplish the fullness of your faith alone. On your own. We cannot depend upon pastors. We cannot depend upon commentaries, Matthew. We cannot go alone into prayer. We cannot study alone. We must be accompanied by the Ruach HaKodesh. We must meet the Ruach HaKodesh. If we can end this church dependency, then we can have the power to reverse everything that has been shoveled down our throat since the Council of Nicaea, or even maybe earlier to the Talmudic times of the Babylonian captivity. And the power of reversal does that. We cannot be dependent. We must be independent, free thinkers to implement the power of reversal. Isaiah the prophet was a master of the power of reversal. Everything negative, he turns it positive. It's absolutely miraculous to me. The bad things that happen to me, Isaiah and I somehow make them good. That means you can't do anything to hurt us. I've learned this from the prophet Isaiah. Get this. Events in life, brethren. Where are you? Which camera are you? Events in... I'm on that one? But it says that one. I'm on that one. Confusion. No. Clarity. There you are. Look, get this. Events in life, they are not negative or positive. They are just events. Events in life, they are not negative. And they're not positive. They are completely neutral. It is our mind that chooses to interpret events as negative or positive. If we have leftover layers of fear, uncertainty, and doubt within us that we have not dealt with, then our natural tendency is to interpret neutral events and give them dark energy and interpret them as temporary obstacles in our path. We now interpret them as something larger than a temporary obstacle. We now interpret them as a major obstacle, as a setback, as a crisis. They're a neutral event. You choose to interpret it negative or positive. The negative realm is the realm of Satan. It's always magnified, and it's always imagery. I've learned through the prophet to take the opposite approach, because Isaiah was a master of reversal. Instead of becoming discouraged and depressed by a downturn in life, I see it as a wake-up call. I do. It's a wake-up call. It is a challenge for me to transform into an opportunity for a powerful faith dynamic. My energy my energy starts to rise up. I start to get pumped. My faith starts to increase. I have a peace and I have a purpose and I arise to this and my mind begins to get clearer. I begin to get clarity. I have vision. 
I am starting to think like a prophet. Mentally framing a negative event as a blessing in disguise makes it easier for me to propel myself forward. You cannot hurt me. You are just presenting me with an opportunity. Because it's a neutral event. And I choose to take the power of reversal of what you may intend for harm and turn it into absolute embetterment of my life. And now, it's on. I've got work to do. This is my wake-up call. My faith starts to increase. I start to get pumped. My mind begins to get clear. My roots start to go deep. And I'm about to suck in some serious learning. I'm about to get educated. I am about to get educated, enlightened, and empowered because I am going to propel myself forward. I choose to frame a neutral event, not as a negative event. I am going to take this, what you intend as a negative event. It is a neutral event. You intend it to be negative. I see it as neutral. I am now going to take this neutral event and choose to make it a blessing in disguise which is going to propel me forward because when bad things happen to me, this is what I have learned in life. When bad things happen to me, I assume a kind of normality. It's not really not that bad. This is normal. This is normal for Matthew. I make the most of what I have. I can't say that word here because we're in ministry. And I wouldn't say it anyway, but I used to say it. I turn something begins with an S and ends with a T into sugar. <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. Even the bad stuff. I have a fearless, ask my family, I have a fearless attitude to adversity because I have something against which to measure myself. Then I implement the power of the prophet, the power of reversal. Adversity gives me something to measure myself against. It's an opportunity for me to measure my faith, to measure myself. Have I really grown? This is a challenge. And if you don't know anything about me, I've always liked challenges. Always liked challenges. And my roots go deep because they connect to the virgin. My roots go deep because they connect to Emmanuel. My roots go deep because they connect to the resurrection. My roots go deep. And I shall drink for eternity because of those deep roots. You can't hurt me because I'm connected to the virgin. Because I see the prophecies and I cast out fear uncertainly and devilish doubt. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Receiving the pinnacle of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation Isaiah... He was inquiring about. He searched it out diligently. And he even prophesied of the grace that would come upon you. And you, and you, and you. Isaiah chapter 42, that's 1 Peter 1, 9. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. He's not going to give into fear, uncertainty, or doubt. Till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his Torah. Isaiah did not fight against circumstances. If he would, he would have fallen out of balance with the natural state of things. I have learnt, do not fight against a neutral event. Do not fight it. Accept the neutral event and turn the neutral event into a positive event. You can turn into sugar. The bad stuff is normal. You normalize it. You become normal. Or it becomes normal. You normalize the bad stuff in your life. And of course, the grayer hair you get, the more experience you have. You're like, you think this is bad? <laughs> Let me tell you about something else that happened. No, we won't get into that. My wife's watching. Okay, but I'm just telling you, you can turn it into sugar. You norm It's a neutral event. This is a blessing. I was asleep at the wheel in this aspect of my life. I am not blameless. I allowed this to happen because I wasn't paying attention or I didn't deal with something when I should have dealt with it. I didn't have the hard conversation when I should have had the hard conversation. I most probably got affected by all those soy lattes they were trying to serve me up when I was on that keto diet or whatever it was. Of course, I don't do that anymore. I just do a double shot of espresso and just call it good. Leave the soy alone. No soy boys in here. Right? Isaiah didn't fight against the circumstances because if he had, he would have fallen out of balance. Well, neutrality is where you're balanced. That's the natural state, the neutral state of things. I'm balanced. It's balanced. It's not negative or positive. It's a balanced event. Take the balanced event. Now, calm down. Have patience. This is an opportunity to turn a neutral event now that has been presented to me and turn it into something positive in my life. It doesn't matter if somebody presents it to you as negative because they have taken a neutral event in their life and chosen to interpret it, what? Negatively. Therefore, they are now trying to pass the negative charge onto you 
but it comes to you neutral. Then, now, there's an opportunity for you. It's an opportunity. Thank you. I accept that. And now this neutral event, don't care. Don't, I love saying that. Don't care. Don't care. Don't care. Facts, don't argue them. Don't care. You've interpreted that as negative. You're presenting it to me, but it's neutral. Because the negative, that's your interpretation. And that's your presentment. No problem. But it's a neutral. It's new. I've never seen it before. It's new. Now I have the opportunity to turn this into something that is going to better my life. It's a positive charge. It's a positive charge. But you have to accept the charge to turn it into a positive charge. You can never fight against circumstances. Because you're fighting against something that you can't win against. It's been presented to you. It's there. So there's only two things to do. Reject it. Which means rejection is a positive or a neutral event. Or a negative event. What is rejection? Is it neutral? No. It's a negative event. If you reject it, you've just gone into the negative event. Argue against it, you've gone into the negative event. It's a neutral event. Accept it. Now you have the power to make it a positive event. This is what Isaiah did. This is what the martyrs did. They were presented with, an, with a neutral event. And they chose to accept it. And it was going to turn into glory. Their names would be spoken off lips for millennia. They would be seated in glory. That's how your faith, you can become the saints. This is some powerful technology right here. If you can understand what the speaker is speaking as the hearer with a blood-tipped ear. Isaiah didn't desire things that were different. He didn't fall into that kind of thinking. And neither should we. Oh, I wish that hadn't been given to me, presented to me. Oh, I wish that... No, no, now you're trying, now you're falling into negativity just by that. It's just a neutral event. He accepted that all events occur for a reason, and that is within your capacity to see. It is the reason of positive. It's just fire. It's just fire, brethren. And fire can consume us. Or refine us. And once we accept fire, it consumes everything in its path. Fire consumes everything in its path. And once fire is accepted, it consumes everything in its path. All of the facts, all of the circumstances, all of the events become consumed by my mental heat. And they get converted now into opportunities. 
opportunities. A man who believes like this, as I do, a man who believes, as Isaiah does, a man who believes like this cannot be hurt by anything or anyone. This was Isaiah. He let go and he moved through the chaos that presented itself to him. Because he realized that once it came to him, it was a neutral event. It was presented to him as chaos. He saw it as a neutral event, and he turned it into a prophecy of the blessed, blessed son. From within, he found endless opportunities that eluded all of those around him. He let nothing disrupt his flow. Don't let anything disrupt your flow. This is what I learned this week. And I learned it through the prophet Isaiah. But I also learned it by getting drugged into fear, uncertainty, and doubt by reading Talmudic commentaries. Shouldn't have done that. That's all I've got for you. I'm connected to the virgin. I'm connected to the sun. And everything is neutral. And I choose to turn it into something amazing. Blessed be the name of the sun. Who was and who is.